What grace, what mercy we have to sing about. Turn to Romans chapter 1, if you would. We are in the beginning phases of a study through the book of Romans. If you're new to Grace Church, it is our habit to study through books. Uh, we do break from that from time to time, but the normal course of things will be us studying through uh, books of the Bible. We've recently completed a study in Ecclesiastes, and now we have begun a study in the book of Romans, chapter 1. I want to read from verse 14 to verse 23, and the, today we're going to look at one verse. That, that will be a little bit unusual, but when it's necessary, we'll do it, and this verse sets the tone and the the foundation for an entire section coming up. So we're only going to uh, dig into verse 18, uh, but I want to read the surrounding context so you see how it fits together. Do you remember Paul's introduction, introducing himself and God's grace in his life, his love for Roman, Roman church and desire to come there? And he says this beginning in verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Thus far God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. This is the truth about you. It's the truth about us. It's the pr truth about what we deserve and yet what you've given us in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, this morning that you would just freshly cleanse me from all sin, fill me with your spirit, enable and empower me to preach your word, preach it accurately and truthfully, lovingly, passionately, faithfully, and Lord, at the same time, give us ears to hear your word, ears that, and hearts and minds that will embrace it as your word, that will believe what it says and act accordingly, a willingness to be diagnosed by the truth of the living God, a willingness to hear the bad news as well as the good news, Lord, this is a work of your spirit, so we lean hard on you. We pray that your word would run and be glorified, that you would save and sanctify your people, that you would build your church, 
We know that you will accomplish all of your purpose, that your word does not return to you void. And so we look to you with anticipation. Feed our souls with your truth. We give you praise and thanks for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Peace, peace. You will not see the sword. War will not come to this land. You're God's special people. You will experience blessing and have what you want and what you need. Judgment is not coming. You can rest and relax in your God. How about today? Your, how many times have you ever heard this? Your breakthrough is just around the corner. You're the head and not the tail. You should be healthy and rich. No sickness will ever touch you. Judgment is not coming. No. False prophets and false teachers focus on what people want to hear. What people want to have. What people want to think and feel. And Corey has did a, done a good job warning us about false teachers and false prophets from the book of Jews. But why are they so successful? Why do they fill stadiums with their blather? Fearing man, serving man, blowing sunshine... They're so successful because people don't want... They want to hear the easy stuff. They don't want to hear the hard stuff. And they will go to teachers that will tickle their ears. See, we're all born with ears that run from hard stuff. Topics like death and sin and hell and judgment and wrath. But if we're going to be saved, we must not only hear these things, but we must act on their truth. If we would truly have the good news, we must embrace the bad news. We must own the hard stuff. We must embrace the fact that we are born lost and needing a Savior. We are born in a condition of sin. I mean, children testify to that really quickly, don't they? And as soon as they can speak, mine! We're born in sin. We're born in corruption. We're born serving self and, and using God if we even have any reference to Him. But what God does when He brings a person to Himself, first He brings conviction of sin and lostness so that then the good news of the salvation that He's brought makes sense and is desirable. There's a lot of people who preach Jesus as a way to a better and easier life. There's a lot of people who skip the bad news and run straight to the good news. And therefore they neuter it of its meaning. And they become life coaches instead of faithful teachers and preachers of the Word of God. See, we've started our study in the book of Romans and we've seen Paul. And what better example of repentance than Paul? Man who wanted to destroy the church, now an apostle 
of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel, preaching the truth, suffering for it, wanting to come to Rome to preach that gospel. He's under obligation because he's called by God. And he's given us the theme of the whole book when he said he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. First thing that was revealed, we saw that last two weeks ago when we looked at the book of Romans. The righteousness not of God is in His righteousness as He is God, but the righteousness that is required of us, the righteousness that is attained by Christ, the righteousness that is given to us as a free gift through faith in Christ. And He'll pick back, He won't pick up that discussion again until we get to chapter 321. Why? So that we might see the need for that righteousness. So we're beginning a new section this morning, having looked at the theme of the book in 16 and 17. point you back to that if you didn't hear that. Now we're beginning a new section. He turns a corner in 15 about preaching the gospel, tells us in a nutshell what it is, and now he's turning to show us the universal need for the gospel, the universal lostness of mankind. He's going to establish the fact that the Gentiles are sinners. What is that? Non-Jews. Gentiles are sinners and need a Savior, cannot save themselves. Then he will turn the guns on the Jews and show that they also are sinners who need a Savior. And then he will conclude by saying all, basically, are sinners who need a Savior. And we'll see that. So we're, we're beginning that section. And we're going to do one verse which lays the foundation for what we'll see in that section. So Paul, like a true prophet of old... When he's, as after he's mentioned his desire to preach the gospel and he's given a short summary of it, he starts with the bad news that shows us our need before he comes back to that righteousness as a free gift that we also want to hear. But we must talk about what it means to be lost and under condemnation before we can meaningfully come back to righteousness as a free gift. So I would just say prepare yourself. Spiritually, buckle your seatbelts. Pull the wax out of your ears. Look up. Pay attention. Because this is an important message, not just for you personally, but for everyone you'll talk to about Jesus. Because our temptation when we want to talk to somebody about Jesus is just run to the easy stuff and skip the, the foundational message that sets the, the, shows the need for that God, that uh, gospel. So pay close attention to the problem. My main point this morning is just getting us to embrace, and it sounds weird, doesn't it? But to embrace the bad news. To, to embrace it, to believe it, to own it. First about ourselves. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, see, <clears throat> see me as a doctor who's going to give you an x-ray and show you what your problem is. But then I won't leave you guessing. We will talk about briefly the cure, but... We're going to talk way more about that as we study the book of Romans. So main point, embrace thinking rightly about both God's revelation of wrath and His reason for wrath. And we, we rejoiced in His revelation of righteousness when we looked at 1, 16 and 17. Now we have to embrace right thinking about His revelation of wrath and His reason for wrath. Look first at embracing God's revelation of wrath in verse 18a. Look what he says. For, look how he starts. For, connecting, connecting. Why is the good news good news? Because 
the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God. Word, this word here in Greek is a, is a general word, one of two, for, for His wrath. And it's used of anger, and it's used of human anger sometimes, and as well as God's anger. And it, it can communicate a message of being furious. It's not just a mild upset. And when used of God, it refers to His hatred of and His opposition to sin which arises from His nature. And we saw that in our reading, that He is holy and righteous and pure. And Habakkuk says and that He cannot look upon sin with approval because He's holy. And listen, I would just say, sadly, holiness is a foreign concept to a lot of people in the church. A lot of good, saved people in the church don't really understand what it means that God is holy. The first meaning is that He's separate, He's other, He's different. He's the Creator and we're the creature and we're never to blur that distinction. He is higher and lifted up and holy, holy, holy. Speaks of His transcendence and His magnificence in the sense that He's higher and superior to anything in the creaturely realm. He is God. But the second part of meaning of being holy is righteousness. It's purity. God is righteous and pure and He calls us to be righteous and pure on that basis that He is completely righteous and pure and His law is righteous and pure. And therefore, He is opposed. Because He's holy, He is opposed to everything that is not righteous and not pure. And listen, we should not want it any other way. Wrath is a just reaction when sin and holiness come into contact. It's a just reaction. It's a pure reaction. It's a needed reaction. God doesn't weak at sin. He will not let the, 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 the guilty go unpunished, He says. Yes, He's a Savior, and we will talk about that. But we need to embrace His anger against sin. And see, we want, we want that kind of thing. We want righteousness and justice when somebody sins against us or hurts us. We're rarely righteously angry. God's always righteously angry. He's never unrighteously angry. But sometimes we are righteously angry. Imagine someone kidnapped one of your children. You have four children, and someone kidnaps one of those children. And they're caught, and they're put on trial. And imagine the judge looks up from his bench and says, They've not been able to have children. It's not fair that you have four and they have none. You have plenty of children. They have none. They only took one. And, and after all, they have more money than you, and they're in a better situation than you, and this child will be better off. So he drops the charges of kidnapping and awards custody of the child to the kidnapper. What would your response be? Well, praise God, I still got three. 
Or might you be a little bit angry? And why might you be upset? That was an unjust judgment. That was a sinful judgment. That was a wicked judgment. There's a lot of wicked judgments coming out of courts these days, by the way. You would want righteousness. You would want justice. You would have a righteous anger. God's wrath is His holy response to evil, to sin, to wrong. Here's a few quotes for you. Maybe some of this will help. And this is not the only time we'll talk about wrath as we go through. We'll be refreshing and expanding upon a lot of these things. But Leon Morris says this. Now watch, watch these definitions. God's wrath is a strong, settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature. And I put in there as holy. A strong, settled opposition. He's not having temper fits. He's not exhibiting unjust anger. He's not exhibiting sinful anger like we do so many times. But it's a strong, settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of his very nature. John Murray says this, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is in contradiction to His holiness. See, it's not like sinful human anger. It's not self-centered vindictiveness. It's not impulsive, unpredictable temper fits. It's a settled opposition to sin. It's a righteous and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. How do you know what is evil? We have an objective standard. Does everybody know what the objective standard of righteousness is? God's not left us guessing. He's given us what's called ten words. First four of the ten commandments are about God and our responsibility to God. To have no other gods before Him. To worship Him correctly and honor His name and honor His lordship over our life and our time. And then the second six are about our love of neighbor and relationship to one another. And so it's objective moral evil when we violate one of those commandments. And I'm sure looking around that at least one of you at some point in your life has violated one of those commandments. That's where you're supposed to laugh. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all broken every one of them to pieces. Imagine a chain, if you will. If you hook a chain to a car and to another car and start to pull it, how many links have to be broken before that chain is broken? One. Well, we've all shattered them all. And God's righteous and pure and holy response would be wrath because God can have no fellowship, blessing, gracious relationship to sin from that sin being prayed for, paid for, and eradicated. See, God's wrath is righteous and necessary reaction to objective moral evil as defined in His law. It is His holy and righteous anger against sin. It is a holy wrath. And you listen to me today because if you reject what I'm saying and you reject Christ, you will face it by yourself when you stand before the judgment. 
Wrath is a foreign concept. It's not talked about. We don't teach the law. We don't apply the law these days. So we have a bunch of people running in the church who've walked an aisle, been congratulated by a preacher who's going to bust hell wide open if they don't experience a true conversion of their nature. I did it. I walked an aisle. I was assured I was a Christian. And I was lost as a ball in high grass. And when I became a teenager, it became real evident I was lost as a ball in high weeds. But praise God, when I was 26 years old, God really converted me. He convicted me of my sin. I was scared to death to go to sleep until He assured me of His grace in Christ. See, His wrath is something we need to know. And I'm just going to point you to one book. This is not the only book. This book changed my life. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And so, a book like this. Get a good book on the attribute. I promise it will change your life. If you study the attributes of God, I've seen studies in the attributes of God change people's lives like no other thing. Learning who God is really, what His grace is really, what His truth is really, will radically change your heart and your life. And in this book, there are chapters, small pieces of the book. There's a chapter on holiness. And there's a chapter on wrath. So if you want to understand better what holiness is and why God is wrathful, get this book, Knowing God, and read at least those two chapters. I would, I would encourage you to read the whole thing because it, it will point, it, all he's doing is pointing you to Scripture and what Scripture teaches about these things. It's a faithful presentation of the attributes of God. Now, again, there are others, but get a good book on the attributes of God. It's like a systematic theology in that sense and that it brings everything together that talks about holiness or everything together that talks about wrath and, and shows what the Bible teaches on those topics. So I recommend that to you. Anybody wants to borrow my copy and read this week, you're welcome to do that. Um, we've had it on the table before. We don't have any now. I promise you, if you really want a copy and you'll really read it, I'll get you one. But do some homework. Let me ask you this question. Does your theology have, is it able to handle what, what Corey read? Look at what part of Psalm 11 that Corey read. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it for you again. The Lord tests the righteous. In other words, life is not easy for the righteous. You know, you know he's given us a rose garden. There's some very hard things that happen in the life of righteous people. Very, very hard things. God is faithful. He's with us. But sometimes we just don't understand what's going on. But look what it says. God tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now stop. What does that not say? He loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Can your theology handle that verse? Because we try to water stuff like this down. We don't either don't talk about it or we say, well, you know, well, if you look at it, what it really means is he, he, he hates the sin. He loves everybody. I'm telling you, that's not true. Because, how do you know, preacher? He, look what it says. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Just let me ask you, can your theology handle that? If not, please get a copy. Because if you have to start explaining that away, just like verses on election, you just need to dig a little deeper. The mystery is not, not that God hates anybody. It's a wonder He doesn't hate everybody. 
It's not a mystery that he hated Esau. It's a Go read. Wow. Jacob was worse than Esau in a lot of ways. But he loves Jacob because he, it's his grace, his amazing grace. But can your theology handle that verse? That it says God tests the righteous, but he hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, look how it continues. The psalmist wants to allude back, I think, to Sodom. Look in verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For Why is that true? For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold His face. Who's going to behold His face? In blessing, in grace, in relationship, in love. The upright. The upright. A.W. Pink says it this way. I think there is one copy of that if y'all want to run and fight over it. There's one copy of A.W. Pink on the attributes of God over there. And it's not like reading Joel Osteen. In fact, I wish you wouldn't read Joel Osteen. Make you mad? Okay. I'm willing to do that. I need to warn you of places to avoid as well as places to embrace. I love you. A.W. Pink says this, The wrath of God is His eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. What a sentence. Eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine justice. Notice it's not wrong. It's just against evil. It is the holiness of God. See why I want you to understand the holiness? It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. His eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. God must judge sin to remain righteous and just. I mean, I know he's everybody's favorite whipping boy, but what would you think of God if he let Hitler off? But you're not going to stand before God and be compared to Hitler. You're going to stand before God and be compared to Jesus. The only way you're going to measure up is to be in Jesus. Because none of us have kept His law in thought, word, and deed. So that is just, listen, you can see why I'm only preaching one verse, but that is just a little introduction into what it means when it says, the wrath of God. Hell. Condemnation, torment, judgment. That's what we deserve because we've broken His law. Please teach your children that. But it says something else about it. Look what it says in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Like it said, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Right? That righteousness He gives us through faith in Jesus. Also, the wrath. Why do we need that gospel? The wrath of God is a real thing and it's revealed from heaven. How is it revealed? We're going to see this more as we go through chapter 1 and in the following verses, so I'm just going to allude to that this, this morning. But the first way that God's wrath is revealed is in our conscience. We are created in the image of God. His law, though marred through sin, is on our hearts. 
We might not like it, but we know pretty much right and wrong. That's why you can see religion from every culture and, and a lot of the similarities in the morality there. Because mankind is created in the image of God and He knows. He knows there's a God. He knows that He's responsible to Him. And we're going to, again, keep reading. We're going to talk more about that later. There's no person alive that doesn't know there's a God. Why do you think they spend so much time fighting against what they claim not to be a reality? I've told you this before, but the motto of atheist is, there is no God, and I hate him. That's a little torqued. But that, that shows the truth of what God's Word says. But it's revealed in conscience. I personally remember this. Before coming to Christ, I knew I was in deep trouble if I was not converted, but I was having too much fun in my sin. To, that'll be what I do when I'm old. But I didn't, I mean, although I would say dumb things, in my heart, I knew there was a God. I knew I was going to answer to Him someday. I just didn't, I didn't like Him. I didn't want Him. I loved my sin and my way I was going. So it's first revealed in our conscience in that we are created in the image of God. We know He's there. It's revealed in providence. His government and His judgments in this fallen world. I mean, we just studied Ecclesiastes and talked a lot about that. What, why is there war? Why is there violence? Why is there destruction and hatred? Why are there, and I'll put this in quotes, natural disasters? Why is there sin and sickness and death? Because of rebellion against God. Started in the garden. Still going on. And all these little, all of the little episodes of judgment that we see picture and point us forward to that great judgment that is coming someday. The world will shout to you if you're paying attention. This is a fallen world. This is not where you should look to be your home. You should not be looking here but above the sun. Remember our study in Ecclesiastes for salvation and purpose and meaning. And lastly, and I'm, I know I'm going fast, but I have to, and we'll talk more about this as we go forward. Lastly, it's more importantly, it's revealed in His Word. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. What is that first promise or threat, however you want to view it, in the garden? The day, in the day you shall eat of it, I'll be a good grandparent and just swoop it under the rug and there will be no consequences. In the day you eat of it, you shall die. The soul that sins shall die. From early Genesis, his curse in the garden, to Revelation 20. What is Revelation 20? The final judgment. The big judgment. The judgment. The one that's been committed to the Son. God's proved it. Read the end of Acts 17. God is going to judge the world in righteousness by the one He's appointed. It's His Son. And He's proved it by raising Him from the dead. Jesus will be there. Will you be in Him? Or will you have to face that judgment? See, God must judge sin. He judged Israel. Why did Israel go into captivity? Because they turned from God and took on idols and lived in like the nations instead of like His people. Sodom, yes, real place, real sin. And their sin wasn't not being hospitable. And I won't talk any more about that this morning, but we will. 
rain, fire, and brimstone early in the morning, a day like any other day, wake up and all of a sudden destruction. And Corey taught us from Jude that that serves as an example for those who reject God. And it speaks of eternal fire. Jesus talked about the judgment when He would separate the, separate the sheep from the goats and the goats would go away into eternal punishment. And you say, well, I don't like that. Well, the other side of it is eternal life with the same language. So if you'll have eternal life, we have to have... God is clearly revealed in His Word that we are sinful, that we have fallen short, that we are under condemnation, that we don't deserve anything good from Him, that we can't save ourselves. That's the message of the Word that Paul will sum up in chapter 3 when he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Other, other translations, a God who is angry with the wicked every day. If you're not in Christ Jesus, what do you mean, preacher? If, you, if you've not turned and trusted in Christ, God's angry with you today. The Bible's teaching is that you are under condemnation today. If you're not trusting in Jesus. I know I'm starting to squirm too. It's getting uncomfortable, isn't it? But that's the truth. It's the truth. Please own that. Let's turn it. Why is there wrath? Look at, look at um, the rest of verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, there's, it's, it's, it's wrath... God is wrathful for a reason. It's against. Wrath is against something. And look what it says. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. What does that mean? Why well, use two words? And there's a lot of talk about this as whether he's putting two together to communicate one message. I think two things are being communicated here. Look at, look at the verse when it says it's against all ungodliness. That word speaks of a failure to honor God as God, to worship Him accordingly. It speaks of irreverence, and you might think idolatry, living as if there is no God, ignoring His law, refusing to trust and honor Him, failure to love Him. That's what that first word talks about. And if you remember what I said earlier, that would point us to the first table of His Ten Commandments, wouldn't it? Ungodly. No concern for God. Not living for His glory. Not loving Him. That's the flavor of that word. So it's a Godward component first, right? Looking up and how we dishonor God and His wrath is against not recognizing Him as God and, and, and honoring Him as such. And then there's another word here. The wrath is against not only ungodliness, but the unrighteousness of men. And this is active violation of His law. You think murder, adultery, gossip. Yes, I threw that in with those on purpose. God's Word does that. Go read some of the lists. I don't, it's funny on Andy Griffith, but it's not funny before God. I'm not telling you not to watch Andy. And I'm just saying gossip is in the same list with a lot of this other stuff. You know why? It's because it's hatred of your neighbor. 
Sorry, that's another sermon. Murder, adultery, gossip, lying, pornography, lust, stealing, backbiting, failure to love one another. So God's wrath is against the breaking of His law, both the Godward component of it and the manward component of it. Failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Failure to love one another as we love ourselves. Sin revealed by His law. There are people... I'll let you go read this, but the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there are people who will stand before Jesus one day and say, didn't we do this and this and this for you? And he will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Their, sin was, their life was characterized by lawlessness. He says, I never knew you. It's important to get it right. It's important. We have two responsibilities as the church, to get the gospel right and then to get it out. And a lot of people don't pass muster on the first one. And then they get it out. And they fill stadiums and they assure people they're saved when they're not. And that's bad. But God, said, God says His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who really wish they weren't unrighteous. Is that what that says? who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen, people are not born into this world neutral, in a neutral setting. People are born into this, into this world what Paul calls dead in sin and trespasses in Ephesians chapter 2. We are born serving self. We'll have God's service if He'll serve us in the way we want to go. But we're born serving self, hating God. What does that mean? A feeling? No. John says to love God is to obey Him and not see His law as burdensome. Hating Him is not obeying Him and seeing His law as burdensome. Just walking our own way. What does Isaiah say? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has gone his own way. Look what it says. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, in favor of unrighteousness. I remember doing that. Stop telling me about this stuff. I don't want to hear this stuff. Get away from me. I didn't want to be reminded of what I really deep down already knew was that my course was sinful and would be under condemnation. But I thought I was having too much fun. I look back on it now, it's just dumb. But people suppress the truth. They're born suppressing the truth. Why do people ignore God and live for self and sin? Because they love it. Why do they defend it? Because they're slaves to it. And that's why they refuse to hear it. See, sinners try to take the truth of God, put it in a box, and sit on the lid. Well, they keep getting bucked off because it's going to keep popping up. Hey, kids, think about it this way. Take a big beach ball and try to hold it underwater. Next time you're in the pool. It won't work. It'll eventually, it, it'll eventually pop up. Try it. It'll eventually pop up. See, the truth keeps popping up. And people keep going, they keep stiff-arming until God in His grace changes our hearts to see things His way. Because we live in God's world, His truth keeps popping up. Sometimes people are doing it. They're sitting on the box while they claim they're searching for the truth that's in the box. 
Oh, I'm looking, but I just can't find it. Sorry for going all southern on you, but that's just who I am. <clears throat> Jesus taught this. Look at this, John 3, 19 to 21. He says, this is the judgment. This is the judgment. Now watch, the is important. The light has come into the world. God's light through His Word, yes, all of that. General revelation, special revelation, but preeminently Him. The light has come into the world. And they embraced Him and loved Him and changed their lives to... That ain't what they did. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now watch what Jesus says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out by God. Wicked people can't find God for the same reason thieves can't find policemen. You've heard that a hundred thousand times. But what's the reason? They're not looking for, they're running from them. They're not looking for them. So we'll see this later, but those who, who claim there's no God, God says they're without excuse just in the creation, which includes conscience. That it's clear. Jesus said, lost people hold down, they suppress the truth. Paul said, the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritual. He must be born again. Jesus, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. So you're not, you don't repent and believe and therefore you're born again. You are born again through the preaching of the gospel and therefore you repent and believe. Because until God works on you with His special grace, you will be suppressing the truth just like Jesus said. See, the, the natural man is running from Him and hiding from Him and resisting Him all in favor of their sin, what they love. And listen, that sin can be very religiously dressed. It's not just the irreligious, you know, however you picture that. But it's also a very religious segment of society that's stiff-arming God, that's choosing their religion. Okay, I'll do these things for God and make myself right with Him. Mm -mm. You're wasting your time. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God. <clears throat> the wicked resist and suppress the law because they're dead in sin. We'll talk more about that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by or in favor of or through their unrighteousness suppress the truth of what we're about to talk about as we continue studying Romans. The truth of there is a God, the truth of His law, truth of the coming judgment. But let's stop because we've about done all we can do today. But let's think about a little bit of application. I challenged you with the main point, to embrace thinking rightly about both God's revelation of wrath and His reason for wrath. My question for you is, what proves that you have embraced that bad news? What will prove that you have embraced this bad news? I want to give you three things this morning that will prove 
that you have embraced the bad news of God's Word, that you believe you've come to what... When we confess means we turn and agree with God about our sin. And yes, we begin to do that when we're converted, but then we continue through the rest of our life. Repentance is a, is a lifelong thing, and I've just said it. The first thing that proves that you've taken the bad news seriously is repentance. Jesus said repentance is to be preached to the ends of the earth. That's how he summarized preaching the gospel. Repentance. Look at, I'm going to use the Thessalonians as an example in these, uh, in these final points here. But in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, this is what Paul says. The report he heard, he says, we don't even have to say anything about you. Everybody around you knows what happened when we preached the gospel there. But he says this in 1.9. They themselves report concerning what kind of reception we had among you. Now watch this. This is talking about repentance. It's just not using that word. How you turned to God. In order to turn to, you have turned from. Turn from selfish way. Turn from sinful, self-serving way. Turn to God. How you turn to God from idols. Anything we're worshiping other than God is our idol. It doesn't have to be a little statue you set on yourself or a big one. You are probably your biggest idol. Turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Turn from going against His way to submitting and embracing his way. Why? Because we heard the good news. They heard the bad news, I mean. And they believed it. And they saw their need for the gospel so that they turned and received the Lord Jesus Christ. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Has God changed your life? When you came to Jesus, did your life change? Because your heart changed. Did the things that you love change? See, I was... So, and listen, if you, were, if you don't remember when you were converted, if you were raised in a Christian household and all you've ever known is trusting Jesus, don't be ashamed of that testimony. God did something really special in you at a really young age. I wish I had your testimony, okay? But I was 26 years old, so I had a, I had a dark track record. I had, a, I had a record to turn from. But I remember suddenly, suddenly, I didn't know what was going on in my heart because the things I used to love, I hated. And now those church people that I thought were weird, now I wanted to be with them. And I wanted to hear this word because a heart change had happened. Here's the shorter catechism number 87 definition of repentance. Let this examine us because this is just a summary of what Bible, the Bible teaches. What is repentance unto life? See how practical these questions are? Answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. God works it in you. Whereby a sinner, now watch what it's out of, out of a true sense of his sin. A sinner who hears this bad news and embraces it, believes it, sees that they're in trouble. A sinner out of true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. See, they've heard the gospel. They've embraced the bad news, but wait, there's salvation in Jesus. So they're turning to embrace that salvation. Whereby a sinner, out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin. You want to know if your heart's changed? See if that's there. Do you hate your sin and grieve over it and want to be free from it? 
It says, with grief and hatred of his sin does turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor or striving after new obedience. So when we hear the gospel and some crazy preacher like me stands up and tells them, you are lost, you are under condemnation, you need a Savior, you've fallen short of His righteousness. You believe that. And then you hear me point you to Jesus and you turn and you receive Jesus. You have a new heart that wants to now love Him and obey Him. What, what did Jesus say about that? If you love me, you'll have good flippy feelings in your heart. Now, that's true sometimes, right? Sometimes the gospel really comes powerfully alive in our hearts and produces emotion and this good thing but he said the evidence of love for him what he said if you love me you will keep my commandments so whatever i'm doing and however i'm claiming to love jesus if my life is not characterized by following him i don't love him repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred turn from his sin unto God and purposes new obedience, good works. For gr by grace are you saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he foreordained that we should walk in them. So the first evidence that you've taken this bad news seriously is that God's work repentance in your heart. Conversion is made up of two things, though. There's repentance, and now this is two sides of the same coin, but there's repentance and faith. Faith, that what we just saw in that question, turning to Christ, an apprehension of the mercy of God, turns from sin to Christ, and that's turning to God. Faith. You, you've heard the gospel. You believe the facts of the gospel, so you turn and entrust your soul to Jesus for salvation. So do you, I'm not asking you if you have a perfect faith, because listen, I don't even care what you say. None of you do. You know when you'll have a perfect faith? When you glorify, when it becomes sight. But God, if you have true faith, means you're looking to Jesus for salvation. R.C. Sproul says if you have any love for God in your heart, God put it there. That's not the natural situation. So have you turned and are you trusting in Jesus alone? Christ came. Why did Jesus even have to come? The Word says He came at the right time. He was born under His own law. He fulfilled that law in thought, word, and deed. What did He tell the, John the Baptist? We must fulfill all righteousness. And He did. And though he deserved only blessing at that point, then he took the guilt of our sin upon himself and he went to the cross with it. And yes, he suffered horribly physically, but that was the, the smallest part of his suffering because the cup of wrath was poured out upon him on that cross. God's condemnation do all of God's people, all who would trust in Jesus, all who had been given to the Son before the foundation of the world, that was poured out on Christ. And because he was God and man, he drank that cup dry. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, your sin is paid for. That wrath do you went on him. And listen, he either paid for all of them or he paid for none of them. He didn't pay for part of them for you, and now you've got to pay for the rest. Because he, he didn't say it was almost finished. He didn't say it was almost paid. What did he say? 
it is finished. To tell us that. Paid in full. So that if you've come to faith in Jesus, God has wiped out your record. It was obliterated on the cross. And He's granted to you Christ's record so that your record before God now is perfect and complete, joyful, loving obedience to God. Forgiven, clothed in His righteousness, adopted into His family, based on Christ, justified, being sanctified, someday to be glorified. If you've taken this warning and this bad news seriously, you have turned and trusted in Jesus, but there's another element. There's one more thing I want to point out. The third element of taking this bad news seriously. I want to ask you, if you were walking beside the Niagara River and you're a quarter of a mile away from the falls and you see a, a raft full of people having a blessed time on that river, what would you do? Would you say, I don't want to spoil their fun. I don't want them to hate me. How about you're walking in your neighborhood one day and your neighbor's house is on fire? Oh well, God's sovereign, tough luck. Uh-uh. The third and necessary element of taking this bad news seriously is witness. We turn out. See, we've turned from, we've turned to, and now we turn out. What did Isaiah say when he was cleansed of his sin? What was his attitude when God said, who will go for us? He turned into horseshack. Do you remember? Welcome back, Cotter. Some of you do. Oh, 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 oh. I'll go. We've not taken this bad news seriously if we're not willing to tell other people that they're in danger. See, love warns people to flee from the wrath to come. That's what I'm trying to do for you this morning. Only God knows if you'll receive it. Love warns of danger. What is the mission of the church? Fill up buildings, sit around, be fat and happy. Uh uh. Look over that door. Under that exit sign when you walk out. Look what happened to, to this. Look at the Thessalonians. They not only turned to God and turned from idols, it says they, they turned to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Now watch how Paul describes Jesus. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, he had told them that. He had preached this to them. He had told them that judgment is coming. Listen, and I know there's some crazy people on the street that say a lot of crazy things. There are a lot of moralists on the street. There are a lot of name callers on the street. But don't relegate this message I'm giving you this morning to, to somebody, the nut, who's saying the end is coming. Well, you know what? They're right. Judgment is coming. Repent. They're right. Now, they might not be doing it the right way sometimes. There's nothing wrong with street. Good street preaching is a good thing to do. Church history is filled with it. Bad street preaching is not. So, you know, Pelagius should stay at home. But what did Paul do? He went in the marketplaces and things. And Anyway. But he warned them that Jesus is the one who delivers from the wrath to come. And listen, 
I remember when I was first converted, it drove me crazy because I couldn't talk to everybody about Jesus. And then we grow mature in Christ and we let that edge fall away. And then we feel like, gosh, I have to talk to somebody so that preacher will leave me alone. Love of neighbor, love of God, embracing the bad news will turn me out. Have you repented? If not, repent. Have you trusted Christ? If not, trust Him. Are you a witness? If not, you're not taking this bad news seriously. But see, I, th I know what's true of most of us. Yes, we are witnesses. We just don't feel like we're good ones. We think we're weak ones. And you know what? You're right. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the message. It's the, it's the master. Paul said he went to Corinth in fear and trembling. There's something wrong with us if we're not in fear and trembling when we're delivering the message. But we need to deliver it. So repent. Trust Jesus. Go out there with the good news of grace. Can you imagine this? Salvation is a free gift. Deliverance from wrath is a free gift. Jesus is the package. Will you have the package? Kids, for God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that if you'll be good enough, is that what it says? That's not what it says, is it? He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, literally believes into Him, trusts Him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So I started with the false example of the false teachers and preachers. Let's not be that way. Instead of worrying so much about what people want to hear, let's focus on what they need to hear. The same gospel we heard by God's grace that only makes sense. The good news only makes sense in the light of what we call the bad news that we've done a little bit of talking about today. So embrace thinking rightly about both God's revelation of wrath and His reason for wrath. Repent and trust Christ alone for salvation and then go herald, preach, proclaim, teach, share this good news of His gracious deliverance from the wrath to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Have mercy on us, Lord. I pray for those who are either in this building who don't know you, on the live stream who don't know you, or listening to a recording who don't know you, that you would grant repentance and faith. That no one would simply blow this message off. It's coming straight from your word. That we would do business with you, either toward our assurance if we are saved or towards conversion if we're not. Impact our lives with the truth of your holiness, your righteousness, your justice, your godness, so that we, like Isaiah, are leaping off of our feet to be sent by you to tell others about this good news, so that we, like Paul, are granted repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Convert and sanctify your church, Lord. Rock us, transform us. 
Lord, may we be out in these streets and byways and highways and workplaces and neighborhoods with this same good news that reveals the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, a free gift to us through faith. May we be faithful, Lord, to share repentance and faith on the basis of both the good news and the bad and see people come to and flourish in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make Grace Church a God-honoring, spirit-filled, Christ-centered, gospel-trumpeting church here and around the world. It is your command, it is your purpose, it is our prayer. And individually make that the same thing in our lives, Lord. Have mercy. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Grow us in grace, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.